Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, fighting stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org and there is a button for donations where you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. We so appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. We are all learning together. Thank you. Ellie Somer, PhD, is a full clinical professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Haifa School of Social Work in Israel. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and hypnotist and an Israel Ministry of Health certified supervisor of psychopathology and psychodiagnostics training. Professor Somer has been treating survivors of trauma since the mid-1980s, himself a son of Holocaust survivors and a combat veteran of two major Middle East wars. Somer has also served as a reservist mental health officer, captain, and a commander of a frontline combat stress treatment unit of the Medical Corps of the Israel Defense Forces. As an academic, Somer has written over 150 scientific publications in the field. He has identified a phenomenon he termed maladaptive daydreaming, and his current research focuses on the successive and distressful form of fantasizing. Ellie Somer was founder and scientific advisor of Trauma and Dissociation Israel, TDIL. He is co-founder and past president of the European Society for Trauma and Dissociation, ESTD, and past president of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, ISSTD. Ellie is currently involved in the establishment of the International Society for Maladaptive Daydreaming. Somer is the ISSTD recipient of the Cornelia Wilbur Award from the year 2000 for his outstanding clinical contributions to the treatment of dissociative disorders and the recipient of ISSTD's Fellow Status 2001 for his excellent contributions to the field of dissociative disorders. Ellie Somer also received the President's Award for Outstanding Leadership twice, from ISSTD in 2006 and from ESTD in 2012, as well as in 2014, the ISSTD awarded him the Lifetime Achievement Award. He has been listed twice as one of the 10 best clinical psychologists in Israel. Welcome, Ellie Somer. I'm Eli Sommer. I'm a clinical psychologist uh, out of Israel. Um, I'm uh, a professor emeritus uh, at the University of Haifa here, and uh, my main field of interest is uh, trauma and dissociation. But in um, 
so, I, so I'm a both I'm a, I'm a scientist practitioner, meaning that I uh, I see patients, but I also conduct research. And in recent years, um, I have been involved extensively in uh, in research of uh, a um, uh, I would say uh, in a, a pathological. Uh, uh, excessive form of, of daydreaming that we uh, we call maladaptive daydreaming. It's just a form of associative absorption inwardly. So we actually have kind of an interesting story as far as connecting because I think we got connected online initially because we had some mutual friends. So that's actually how I first found you. And then because I was following that, I saw the articles that you were writing or the things that you were sharing, the studies that you were doing about maladaptive daydreaming. Uh And that was really intriguing to me. But then you contacted me when you saw our article come out. And so it's actually perfect timing because I want to talk about all of this. But before we before we dig into that, tell me how you got involved with trauma and dissociation in the first place. Well, it's been uh, almost, you know, a career-long uh, um, uh, practice and, and uh, involvement on my part. Uh, I think that uh, uh, it was uh, more than 35 or 40 years ago that when I first started uh, my clinical work that uh, um, a, a person with DAD walked into my office. I mean, this was at a time where uh, the concept of, of dissociative identity disorder was not not really known. It was called at the time multiple personality. But at any rate, I, I was really uh, uh, unsure how to how to proceed clinically. I, I sought some uh, supervision and um, got very interested in this unique form of. Uh, uh, post-traumatic uh, dissociation and and the psychopathological uh, aftermath of, uh, of of such uh, adversities. So uh, so this is how it started. Uh, ever since then, I've been involved in uh, treatment, research, and and uh, and, and education uh, of, of maladaptive daydreaming. Oh, I'm sorry, of dissociative disorders. And it is in this context um, that uh, I've, I discovered uh, maladaptive daydreaming because uh, my practice, uh, even until now, is comprised of people with uh, post-traumatic dissociative disorders. And it was in this context that I discovered um this phenomenon, what I mean by discovered, but just people I, I by chance had a cohort of uh, of patients, of six patients who talked to me about or sort of insinuated some talk more openly about their uh, fantasy life. And uh, it caught my attention and I described it, but because it, I, I saw these patients within a uh, you know, my practice, I assumed that it's uh, it's trauma-related, and this is how I described it in the seminal paper that I published uh, on this phenomenon. 
So how are you describing maladaptive daydreaming? What do you mean when you say that? And how is it different from other dissociation? Or is it any different? Or what is going on with that? Well, um, it is different in, in, in several ways. But let's, let's first uh, try to characterize what it is. Well, everybody daydreams. Uh, and this term daydreaming uh, is sort of uh, murky because uh, different people and scholars uh, mean different things when they when they talk about daydreaming um, for example one synonym used in the literature is mind wandering but mind wandering is uh, mostly sort of uh, the mind being off task, uh, sort of floating freely from one association to the other, uh, thinking about uh, conversations one had or plans to have, or you know, planning uh, what to do uh, on vacation or what to cook for dinner. That's, uh, that is in contrast to the very vivid visual and fanciful form of daydreaming that uh, we see in maladaptive daydreaming. So we're talking about a form of daydreaming that essentially requires a trait uh, that enables the individual to be fully immersed, uh, absorbed, uh, in in fantasy, and uh, that is that capacity is is utilized by people who have this ability, which we call immersive daydreaming. It's a unique form of daydreaming, very vivid. Uh, so people who are immersed in their daydream, in their vivid daydreams, often spin scenarios and create fanciful, rich stories inside. They could be about unrealistic uh, developments in their real life, for example, you know, having uh, an affair with an office worker that is not interested in, 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 in you. That would be something involving real life. Uh, but uh, other scenarios could be um, living uh, in or with a fictional family, performing uh, you know, uh, in, on, 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 on stage or being a world-class athlete, unless you, you are a world-class athlete. But uh, if you're not, that's uh, offensive for fantasy. And, uh, um, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, some of the fantasies can be fantastical, completely fantastical in nature, in, like you know, science fiction type or Harry Potter environments and so on. So that's something else. I mean, that that is really uh, having a virtual reality uh, uh, hardware between your ears and uh, turning it on, sort of switching the software or the world inside at will. That that's to me pretty cool. I mean, I'm saying it's to me pretty cool because I don't have this trait. I I can't do it. So that's that is in essence what we're talking about now. It, oh, what is it is a question that we're still debating uh, in, in among people who are interested in this. What is it in essence? Is it uh, uh, an obsessive compulsive disorder where people feel compelled to, to, to do something in their mind? Uh, is it a behavioral addiction because people uh, sort of uh, can't help themselves, but, you know, repeating uh, and, and, uh, the, this mental activity and wanting to go back to it? 
you know these these uh, variant variables uh, are are valid, but I we believe that what it is in essence is based on on our research uh, that it is uh, an intense form of dissociative absorption. Dissociative absorption uh, was always part of the basic measure of dissociation, the, the, the dissociative experiences scale, but. Uh, was recently argued not to be part of, of the domain of pathological dissociation that uh, we commonly study because it is uh, was argued that it's just a, a normal mental activity you know everybody gets absorbed in a book in the movie or even in thoughts while driving and that's normal what we are demonstrating is that there is a pathological form of this normal variant of dissociative absorption and it's diso- immer- uh, it's immersive daydreaming taken to the extreme so that so this uh, immersive daydreaming as i said is ostensibly a, a a pleasant rewarding mental activity it's disconnect to disconnect from the uh boring uh, mundane reality and and creating uh perhaps a more exciting or exhilarating or emotionally intense alternative experience in your mind. Uh, However, what we know in basic psychology that uh, anything that is rewarding tends to increase in frequency. I mean, if you get rewarded for a particular behavior, that increases the likelihood for you to repeat it. So uh, in 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 moderation immersive daydreaming is um, it's just you know a talent that some people have and some people don't a talent involving the ability to get a sense of presence in your inner world that you can create and, and uh, be creative about but when this rewarding activity is uh, employed excessively I would uh, compare it perhaps to uh, the savoring of wine. You know, a good uh, people can enjoy a complex, rich glass of wine, enjoy its uh, its color and its uh, bouquet and its uh, complexity of taste and so on. But um, downing a, a bottle or two every evening uh, would not be. A, a, refined behavior anymore would constitute perhaps an addiction. So I think this is a fair analogy. We have something that is potentially, that is complex and rewarding and enjoyable, but but it can be overused because it is accessible and it is legal, you know, Uh, and it can, for some people, be a vehicle uh, for um, um, the regulation of, of difficult feelings. So it can come, uh, so this is, uh, now I'm closing the circle and I'm going back to where I started. So this is how some of my client patients that I described originally who had adverse childhood experiences. Uh, so they apparently had this trait of immersive dating and they, they uh, utilized it to uh, regulate uh, their feelings of uh, distress under duress and later on to deal with their memories and the aftermath of their abuse. But I will conclude this long answer to your short question by saying that 
you don't need to have a trauma history in order to develop maladaptive daydreaming because uh, the trait is unrelated to uh, to adversities. It could it is innate. Uh, that's that's our belief because most people they have been doing it since they remember themselves. So it is an innate trait, and that can become addictive because of its uh, uh, rewarding nature, regardless uh, of, of of any adversities one one had experienced in life. Thank you for sharing that. I know that some of the intersectionality between what you've been studying and my article came because of that piece with the online community and that article that we just pub that I just published in the European Journal of Trauma and Dissociation was the history of how the plurality happened online and just getting that language into the literature so we could study it more but that intersects so much with what you've already been working on and I talked about in the article that it almost has become two separate groups. So they have termed themselves or ourselves, the group, the community online with the overall umbrella term of plurals. And that is including the two groups of the traditional traumagenic DID partial DID, OSDD, those kinds of dissociative disorders where it is trauma-based, people are distressed by their symptoms, phobic of parts or alters, and the avoidance behaviors, all of those traditional traumagenic kind of trauma responses. And then the other group of people who are identifying as plural culturally, but not distressed or bothered by their symptoms. Some of them, most, many of them. And it, it it's a very delicate thing because politically we're not trying to offend anyone or we're not trying to it, dismiss anyone from any kind of treatment that they want for even other reasons that don't have anything to do with multiplicity. And so at the same time, it's spreading in such a phenomenon, like it's really important for clinicians to understand what's going on so that they know how to help and they know how to treat the people who do come for treatment. And so the, the, the years that it takes or the months that it takes or weeks that it takes, however it all unfolds to actually get an article published in that time, we've also now had the rise of TikTok, which brings up right. a whole new thing because even other mental health issues are documenting this phenomenon of sociogenic mental health issues that are people who watch symptoms happening so much, whether authentic or otherwise, that it's then replicating in them. And that's been extensively researched, especially with Tourette's. And, and so that brings up a whole new thing because this is another area where it's almost like, so that's like almost a third group now under that overall umbrella of this sociogenic phenomena that doesn't have anything to do with trauma, but really is 
a valid experience they're experiencing because of their interaction on TikTok or or YouTube. And so that's another area where it really starts to intersect with what you're describing of these repeated exposures, I guess, if you will, and correct me if I'm using wrong terms, but just trying to break it down a little bit, these repeated exposures to what that is like and the reinforcement of experiencing that over and over again so that with the non-traumagenic plurals, we get almost the opposite where instead of that traditional phobia or avoidance of a system, we have this, I know all of my altars. I have these very rich, detailed inner worlds. And and I'm just trying to express what I have seen and heard talked about. This is not my experience. So I don't mean at all in any way disrespect. Just they have this capacity to know this extensive deeply detailed rich inner world and all the relationships with the people and it's so fascinating to me not in a way that I want to be gawking at them or or intrusive to their experience at all but my experience in therapy is I don't want to know (laughs) I've been in therapy for this long and I've made this much progress but I still don't want to know and it's such a different thing that in trying to just connect well with and just be supportive or present or ask clinicians knowing how to treat them it's a very different presentation than traditional <clears throat> traumagenic did well you're raising a few uh, interesting points first of all the term uh, sociogenic uh, did has been u- used by detractors of, of of DID and its validity and its trauma history. Uh, and it was um, used particularly in courts, mainly by the defense attorneys of people accused of, uh, of uh, hurting their, their young family members. Um, and the claim was that it was something learned. Uh, has not, there's no evidence that trauma can produce DID, and this is something people somehow uh, get influenced by others through popular media and develop this as a, as a you know, fashionable or desirable way to be. So, but I'm sure you're not. You don't mean uh, to go uh, to that that direction. That that's I, that is actually one of the big concerns of the community of people who do have traumagenic DID is that we've worked yeah. so hard for research, and we have like the fMRI studies coming out now with Simone Renders and that it is a traumagenic disorder, that it is distinct from other disorders. And now we have this phenomenon coming out and clinicians who already are not familiar with dissociative disorders, it's like another excuse to just write off all the progress that we've made. And I think that's one reason there's a little bit of tension in the online community that it almost feels like even though Oh, it's so tricksy because like, I want to be inclusive and supportive and yes, everyone should have access to treatment in the ways that are meaningful to them. But then also at the same time, it's like, this is putting me in danger or this is putting us in danger. This is what it feels like, the, the affective experience. Yeah. 
And right, so it's right. hard to not, like, how do you wrestle that tension and untangle what is what? Right. Well, uh, you, you are now taking the discussion to, uh, to uh, that of uh, DAT, sociogenic versus traumatogenic uh, DAT. Uh, the issue I've been, I've been focusing on, uh, again, definitely is not uh, uh, conditional upon uh, uh, a trauma history. Uh, although um, people with a trauma history are highly and disproportionately represented among people with maladaptive daydreaming, most, like 70% at least, of people with, with maladaptive daydreaming uh, report no trauma history. Uh, we have um, discovered, um, and that's you know, a paper that, my, my, the, the most recent paper that I've led and, and, and was uh, published in October, it has to do with another emerging online culture, and that is of reality shifting. Uh, this this um, phenomena has been brought to my attention by a person who uh, knows me through my uh, my writing and thought that I might be interested in it. And I, much to my astonishment, I found a, a, a flourishing online culture of, of people who are trying to teach each other how to create an, an alternative world. And some of them, by the way, believe that they actually create uh, a parallel in, uh, existence, a parallel environment that exists out there. Like in quantum physics, they, could, they, could, they believe that they could be in both uh, here and now and, and over there. Uh, at the same time or within a few seconds to move to a totally different uh, environment. But um, now regardless of, of those particular claims, uh, youngsters are, uh, are really interested in this as a way to free themselves from uh, the constraints or uh, the limitations of, of, of their immediate external reality. Uh, what I found very interesting to re in reading the, the posts and the interactions online uh, is the fact that some are very successful in doing this and are teaching sort of all sorts of techniques that basically involve what we concluded are self-hypnotic techniques, uh, like focusing attention and uh, uh, giving oneself uh, affirmations and... Uh, sort of planning very carefully the self-suggestions of, of what to see and what to experience. But so, some apparently are very successful in doing that, and others express the frustration of being unable to do it. So I, what I believe is happening is that people simply differ in their ability to dissociate willingly or to uh, engage in immersive uh, fantasy uh, uh, I, for example, have no such capacity at all. So no matter, I'm, I'm very difficult to be hypnotized and I, I don't have a rich fantasy life that is vivid. And so people like myself would express frustration with being unable and wanting very much to do it. But at any rate, what's interesting is, uh, again, that, that, that our people are seeking uh, consciousness-altering experiences and uh, so... And to what extent is it normal or pathological? I mean, that that I guess is depends on on um, on uh, on their functioning ultimately and on their level of well emotional well being.
I think this is actually a really important piece to remember because even though what is commonly shared is that experience of multiplicity amongst those two or three different groups of these experiences, we're talking about distinctly different things because <clears throat> traumagenic DID is a response to trauma. These other experiences are using intentional dissociation and they are not distressed by it and it's not disordered in that context. So I think they would agree that it's not DID in that way. But at the same time, if they have other things like, like Peter Barish said, if they're distressed by anxiety or depression or something like that, then they still can come for treatment, of course. And mm -hmm. so I think one thing that when, when people are feeling sensitive or anxious about it is just remembering that what's shared in common, the plural concept, is just about the experience of multiplicity itself. But traumagenic DID and these other forms of plurality where it's the sociogenic on TikTok or anthropological in these other intentional dissociation ways that everyone can sort of hold space for themselves and each other without it being the same thing. It's not the same thing and that that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the insistence of, of, of uh, staying plural, even uh, as, as a, at the end of therapy is something I've encountered throughout my career. I mean, uh, I know that uh, more conservative uh, leaders in my field insist that there's only one cure to DAD, and that's complete fusion and integration. But uh, the fact of the matter is that it's up to the client to decide how they want to be and how to define themselves. And uh, from my perspective, and that is in line with uh, the DSM principles, one can have all the phenomenological manifestations of DAD, but if uh, there is a sense of well-being, internal communication, cooperation, and awareness, and exchange of information, and external functioning uh, is, is intact, then um, it's just a different way of being. It's not a disorder. So how does a person who is not a clinician know when they have sort of I don't know, cross the line does not seem the right word, but how do they know the difference between utilizing intentional dissociation in healthy and supportive ways that are meaningful to them, whatever that looks like, and when it becomes maladaptive and is interfering with functioning or things like that, how do they discern that difference when they know they need to go ahead and ask for help? Well, you just said it. You just said it. It's when they are unable to 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 meet their uh, obligations in real life, when they're unable to uh, advance their goals in life, uh, when they are uh, experiencing internal strife and conflict, and and they are paralyzed and in, 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 uh, and unable to conduct their lives effectively. So that's in the functioning domain. So that's one criteria a very important criteria, uh, scholastic, academic, work, family, relations, functioning, I mean, all that, if it's not 
it, if it's not impaired, then there's no problem. And of course, there's the other, that's the objective uh, criterion. And the subjective criterion is distress. So if, if, if you're not bothered by, by, by multiplicity in the sense that uh, uh, you are not, you don't feel that you're being taken over against your will, if you're not losing time, if there's no uh, depression and anxiety associated with this, uh, uh, with this um, disorder, if some parts are sort of leaking uh, distress to other parts, uh, I mean, that subjective criteria is another important indication that one needs help. But other, other, in, in other situations where these two criteria are not met, a person can be um, completely dissociative in the, in the sense that they are uh, functioning as a system uh, and, and still not meet even the DSM criteria, because in the DSM, for almost each and every diagnostic entity, there is a condition that it must uh, impair functioning or, or create distress. And unless this condition is met, then there is no diagnosis. And what about for clinicians? How do they discern the difference of what's going on and how they can help and untangling which is which? Well, talk to the patients, ask them. So, uh, you know, we, we, all we know about our patients in, in psychotherapy is what they tell us about themselves. We don't have uh, <clears throat> neuroimaging equipment that can objectively identify uh, a, a, a psychological disorder. Uh, although now with the recent findings of, with neuroimaging, we might have some markers, but uh, we are far from that. Uh, so um, traditionally, uh, assessment is based on interviewing and talking to our clients. Uh, it is up to the clinician to uh, to determine based on the client's experience if uh, uh, functioning is intact and well-being is preserved. I think that this is one of my favorite things about what I've seen of your work is the humanity of it. Because I think in the community, there is that tension of, but mine is trauma-based. And so I don't have like, I, I, I don't want to stay like this. I, I want to get better. And how do I express that without insulting them who want to be proud of themselves and fight stigma and all these things that are good things. And yet at the same time, when you have that focus of just listening to each other, it helps us remember that my experience can be mine and their experience can be theirs and we can still learn from each other. They can be respectful to those of us who do have trauma and we can mm. learn courage from those who are out and proud and and fighting stigma on behalf of all of us and all that they've done in that way. And then at the same time for clinicians, when we have patients come to our office with DID, we have so much history and experience and skills and literature to know how to treat that well. And in the same way, when we have people coming with these non-traumagenic DID or maladaptive daydreaming or whatever is going on with other expressions of multiplicity, 
it's okay that that's not DID and they are still humans who need treatment and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. At any rate, uh, for me, these are exciting times personally to, uh, to be involved in, in, in this uh, line of research because uh, it's, uh, it's refreshing. It's uh, to, after so many years of um, studying uh, trauma-related dissociation uh, to encounter uh, a whole new field in which, uh, I mean, it has never been talked about. It's not, it's really uh, groundbreaking work and apparently very relevant to countless people out there who uh, m- many of them felt that they, as if they are the only ones in the world who have this because uh, they ne- ne- never read or heard or uh, came across any, any literature about this form of uh, f- fantasy. And when many of them uh, go to, to seek help, those who are distressed by it and want, want to lead a more effective life than, uh, uh, than be present in their own minds all the time, then they, they, many of them get dismissed because the clinicians, again, have not been... It's not in the DSM yet. It's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not taught in school. Uh, so it's being either dismissed as a normal mental behavior um, or misdiagnosed. Uh, consequently, then, uh, of course, uh, wrongly treated. So there's a great need out there to identify those who who, are, who have a multiple uh, worlds and and identities uh, to identify uh, the other forms of, of multiplicity and dissociation out there and to label and uh, and and understand better the variants uh, ranging from normal and adaptive to excessive and and abnormal and and distress producing and develop ways to help those who need help and want help so that's that's where we are at now uh in our work with uh maladaptive daydreaming which if eventually gets into the dsm perhaps should be called daydreaming disorder or uh, or uh absorption disorder or something of that sort because of DSM talks in, in those terms. I think that's a beautiful thing to focus on validating people's experience and being present with what they are experiencing without dismissing them because it's not something else. I think that's really, really important and really, really beautiful. Thank you for that. Well, it's, uh, it's just, there's almost a sense of mission there. And of course, we need to uh, overcome the skeptic- skepticism in the scientific world. So that's always the challenge when, when you have something new. So at this point, we have uh, over 50 scientific p- papers published in good peer-reviewed journals uh, showing that maladaptive daydreaming is a distinct uh, um, uh, mental uh, phenomena that is that causes distress and impairment, and that is not better explained by any other DSM uh, nosology. So, therefore, uh, at least warrants mentioning in the DSM as uh, requiring further research, if not uh, be accepted as an as a as a new entry into this. Uh, psychiatric catalog.
Is there any connection or pattern at all that you've noticed or has been researched between the recent rise in these cases or our discovery of them and the stress and trauma that the world has been through in recent years, whether that's the pandemic or uh, political strife or those kinds of things with it being so increasingly divisive and emotionally unsafe in so many ways, or that's just a parallel process that's also happening? Well, to be able to answer such a question accurately, we would have needed uh, to have measures of uh, uh, maladaptive daydreaming or reality shifting um, going back to uh, many years ago and sort of compare the trend, but that is impossible. So what what we can do is, is for example, measure Google searches. Uh, Google has a tool called Google Trends, and you could enter a, a, a term, an exact term, and then compare it to uh, another term that is uh, of interest, and to see and and then define the span of years that you want to um, gauge uh, the, uh, the, the volume of Google searches and compare. Uh, so what essentially what we know and what we found is that, um, uh, for example, co concerning um, reality shifting, that's our newest discovery, is that the term has practically, practically been... Um, non-existent in, on Google searches before <coughs> um, the pandemic broke out. But only a few months after the pandemic was de declared uh, uh, a world threat by the World Health Organization, a global threat, we, we see a steep um, uh, increase in searches for uh, reality shifting. And, and it's... Uh, this peak uh, sort of leveled off a little bit uh, currently, but it's still much higher than comparable terms. So, uh, yeah, they have, apparently there is some kind of uh, relationship there. We also studied um, maladaptive daydreaming changes before and, and during the, uh, the first uh, global lockdown of the first wave of the pandemic. And this, uh, un without any doubt, we saw definite uh, deterioration in uh, all, uh, a wide range of, um, of uh, psychiatric indices, including maladaptive daydreaming, which shows, by the way, that it's not a form of... Uh, uh, it's not a normal form of daydreaming. By the way, maladaptive dreaming is highly associated, correlated with uh, depression, anxiety, and so on. So that's another indication that it's not normal. And it was also a proof that it's not an effective coping skill because uh, uh, we, we, we measured increases in maladaptive daydreaming and distress uh, during the, the first major lockdown of the epidemic. So, yeah, there are, uh, there are, there are correlations there. But, um, again, the, these abilities to, uh, to alter consciousness without substances uh, is not something new. Uh, the ability to uh, for for multiplicity is not something that was born 
as a result of this pandemic. But uh, of course, if people have these abilities and can utilize them to uh, regulate uh, their distress, they would use it uh, more intensely at, under duress. It's so fascinating what the world has been through and what can tear us apart further and what can bring us together and the difference that listening mm -hmm. and supporting and validating each other really makes in healing for all of us. Right. Was there anything else that you wanted to share before I let you go? No, I think I know you, you took this discussion to the directions that they were of interest to you. And it was, of course, uh, since it was... Uh, more of a discussion than an interview. It was also uh, very interesting for me. So thank you for uh, having me and giving me this opportunity. And it's a, it's a pleasure to, to meet you online. I'm so grateful. Thank you. I really am. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so hi there. <laughs> Uh, tell me, um, uh, you are in Kansas. Uh, are you okay? I mean, I heard the, 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 some terrible tornadoes in your state. Oh, it, the tornadoes were about 30 miles east of us. So we are okay, but we had some wind damage. But in Oklahoma, we mm -hmm. have tornadoes frequently. And so mm -hmm. in this part of the country, not that that makes it okay, but we're pretty mm -hmm. well prepared as much as you can be. But east of us, they don't always have them there. And so the damage is pretty extensive and it all happened fast. And it was such a long stretch of where it was affected, which was very unusual. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you for giving me this opportunity, as I said. And Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Your support really helps us feel less alone while we sort through all of this and learn together. Maybe it will help you in some ways too. You can connect with us on Patreon and join us for free in our new online community by going to our website at www.systemspeak.org. If there's anything we've learned, it's that connection brings healing. We look forward to connecting with you.